O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. to be with you today. I want to welcome those at Bettendorf, those joining us online, and my brothers at Kiwani. I'm super excited to be with you as well. I am grateful to have the opportunity to speak this morning about one of my favorite psalms. Uh, It was about exactly two years ago that Pastor Sean introduced me here in my role as first time. By the way, my name is Brandon Shoup. I am uh, the worship and creative arts pastor here at Heritage. And two years ago on this stage, we talked about some of my philosophy about worship. And In that moment, I used Psalm 63, verses 2 through 5. I want to reference that right now. Because I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. These are beautiful words about what it means to worship. And after studying this scripture more intently, more in depth, I believe in worship more than ever. I believe in the power of worship. And I believe it's what we're created to do. But more than that, I believe it's who we are. It's who we are meant to be. We are built for worship. We are built for connection with the living God. And worship is one of the ways that we have access to him. But before we get too deep into this, I recognize that this is the first time you guys have heard me speak without a guitar hanging in front of me. And so that may be awkward for you, okay? It's a little awkward for me. I'm used to being able to hide a little bit and strum. But here's here's the thing. I've been practicing some positive self-talk this week, and uh, I think we can do this, all right? So let's say this all together. We can do this. We can do this. All right, great. We're good. So I would also be remiss if I didn't introduce you to my family. Uh, This is a picture of my family. My wife Jennifer and I have been married for 19 years now. We obviously got married when we were four. Um, We had Grant shortly thereafter, who is now 14, and he was on that missions trip that uh, Pastor Justin referred to earlier. And I'm so grateful to, to be part of a church that creates experiences and opportunities of outreach like this. We recognize that we go and we get to help. But sometimes being part of that, being part of witnessing how other people live and and seeing how God is at work among the marginalized, it affects and changes us as much or maybe more than how we help others. And I'm so grateful that we as a church are participating in ways like that and for my son to be able to have that kind of an opportunity. And then Jackson, uh, my seven-year-old, you may not recognize him here because he's still. 
you've probably seen him before, but you've seen him in a blur, whizzing right by you or hopefully not into you. So if you are one of the unfortunate people that has had the experience of him running into you or maybe over you uh, here at the church, my apologies, please forgive he and I, but you know, you've seen me bouncing around on this stage like a wild man. So you know at least that they come by it honestly, right? So we're just trying to help them harness that and, 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 and move that energy into something a little bit more productive. So uh, would you pray with me as we get ready to start and dive in? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the divine Logos. You are the word incarnate, the word made flesh. You are the living God. And Holy Spirit, we invite you right now to be here in this place. We, we recognize that you're here, but I ask that you would do what your word says, that you would inhabit the praise of your people. You would inhabit this place. You would speak to your people in your power through your presence in this moment, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's jump in here. Um, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the context of what's going on here. Pastor Sean, as he set up the sermon series on the Psalms a couple of weeks ago, talked about context. He talked about the fact that there are different types of Psalms, that there are different authors, they're written in different places and at different times and for different purposes. And I want to back out just a little bit further and, and talk about that from a biblical standpoint for just a second. So we have a picture here. This is actually a piece of art that I have had hanging in my office for, for several years. This is a visual visual representation of all of the cross-references in the Bible. So the cross-references in the Bible, and you're reading, you know, Matthew chapter 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. You have those little numbers, and then on, this, on the other side, there are little letters, A, B, C, D, E, and so on, so forth. Those are the cross-references. And cross-references are the points in Scripture that scholars have identified that that verse happens to be referencing something else somewhere else in Scripture. And this is a visual representation of all of those references. As you can see, there are quite a few. If we zoom in a little bit here, you can see this is the base, this is that lower left-hand corner. So this gray section, and then there's a white section, and then a gray. Those gray and white sections are all the books of the Bible. And the individual lines that are vertical, those are the individual chapters of those books. If we zoom back out for a second, you can see this really long line right here in the middle. That is Psalm 119. It is the longest chapter in the Bible. And if you learn nothing else today, you can win trivia night. All right? Um, but here's what's beautiful about this. You see all of these arcs and they go backwards and forwards and there are 63,000 of them. 63,000. There's 66 books in the Bible, 63,779 cross-references and that's just about 1,000 per book. That tells me something. That tells me that God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That tells me that God says that when his word goes out, it will never return to him void without accomplishing that for which he sent it. And as I just prayed that Jesus is the divine logos, the word made flesh. There is power in the word of God and it is highly connected. This is our first fill in. The word of God is comprehensive and it is highly connected. It's comprehensive and it's highly connected. It is connected to itself, as you can see, all throughout, it is connected to us and it is connected to the story that God is telling in and through us. So let's jump in to Psalm 63, knowing context a little bit more. So verse one, you God are my God, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. So this is our first clue about the context of the scripture. We've got a picture here of where this was written. This is 
the wilderness of Judea or the, the Judean desert. This is where King David, who's, who wrote this psalm, was when he wrote this psalm. We realize that there are two possible times that he could have written it. He could have written it when he was being persecuted and running away from Saul, or he could have written it during the time that Absalom, his son, was rebelling and trying to usurp the kingdom from him. Most scholars believe that it was the latter. They believe it was during the Absalom rebellion because later on in the Psalm, we have another clue. David refers to himself as the king. And David didn't do that when Saul was still alive. So we believe that this was likely written during the time that Absalom, David's son, was trying to kill David and take over the kingdom. Imagine the level of betrayal that David must have felt in that moment. Imagine your flesh and blood, someone whom you love deeply and want good things for, trying to steal everything from you and kill you. So when David talks about the wilderness, when David talks about a dry and weary land, he's talking about a figurative wilderness. He's talking about this betrayal that he's experiencing. He's talking about the difficulty he's experiencing emotionally, but he's also talking about a, a literal place. This is not a vacation destination, folks. You don't wanna go here. You can see this is rough and rocky and arid and just not hospitable in any way, shape, or form. This is the same desert that John the Baptist came out of eating wild locusts and honey when he began his ministry and preparing the way of the Lord. This is the same desert that Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit, was led into to receive temptation. And it's, what's, what's important about that idea that, that John the Baptist came out of the desert to make straight the path of the Lord. This is also the desert that Luke refers to when he says every valley will be made flat and every high place will be made low and it will be smoothed out as we make way for the Lord. There was an ancient tradition when a king went to visit a new place, he sent envoys out ahead of him to smooth the road so that his entry to that place would be more pleasant and easy. This is a beautiful metaphor for us of all the rocky, rough, difficult terrain in our lives that God is going to smooth out as he makes way for his presence in our lives. So David is talking about the desert, but what's interesting to me is that he doesn't focus on the desert. In fact, the, the sum total of the words that he uses about the desert are a dry and parched land where there is no water. What David decides to focus on is what the desert is pushing him to do, which is to remember God. That's what David does here. He says it in, in the next verses. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. I will glorify you. He's remembering his times of worship in the temple with the people of God. And God has a prescribed order for worship. God has a prescribed order for worship. How we worship matters to him. When he gives directions about how we should do something, I, I'm of the opinion that when God gives directions, we should probably pay attention. Amen? So there is a, there's a prescribed order for it. And I wanna just take a look at some of the words that are used here to describe what authentic worship looks like according to the Bible. Earnestly seeking, thirsting, hungering, longing, seeing and beholding, praising, speaking, singing, playing music, lifting our hands, bowing, dancing, dwelling with him. The scripture says that asking for his help is an act of worship. The scripture says that living in peace with others is an act of worship. So worship is, is more comprehensive than maybe we have imagined before. It's not just the songs that we sing. It's not just the song section of our services. 
the way that we engage the word of God, the way that we engage our tithes and offerings, the way that we sing and lift our hands and dance and bow and dwell with God, the way that we ask for his help, all of these things are the how-tos of worship. But there's a bigger question at play here. What is, what is worship? Those are the how-tos, but what is worship intrinsically? Well, I believe that worship is a response to God's goodness even when we don't see it. Worship is a response to God's goodness. And maybe the better way of saying it is, especially when we don't see it. We remind ourselves of God's goodness in the midst of the wilderness. And I don't know about you, some of you may be in a moment of wilderness in your lives where you are uncertain or unsure or, or fearful or feel lost or confused. Maybe you're doing great, but I, I have a feeling that every one of us in this room and those watching, all of us have experienced a wilderness moment at some point in our lives. Some point in our lives, we have felt like we were far from the goodness of God. And it's in those moments that we have to remind ourselves of his goodness. I remember a moment for me, it was November 1st, 2003. It was a Saturday afternoon and I was waiting in the ICU waiting room of a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma, not sure about whether my wife or my yet unborn son were going to live or die. If you've been in an intensive care unit waiting room, you know that this is a place that is filled with hopelessness, a place that is filled with fear and anxiety and sadness because every single person in that place has uncertainty about whether or not someone that they love is going to make it or not or what the long lasting effects might be of their ordeal in that place. You can literally cut the anxiety in the room with a knife sometimes. And as I sat in that room waiting, I was the student ministry and college pastor at our church and I was one of the worship leaders there. And uh, I was actually scheduled to play uh, the next day. And I remember sitting in the waiting room and, and our worship pastor, Brad, called me and he said, hey man, I heard what's going on with Jen. I'm so sorry. I want you to know that we're praying for you. And I know you're scheduled tomorrow, but obviously don't worry about that. We'll get that covered. But just want you to know that we're praying for you and, and please let me know if there's anything we can do. I said, hey man, thanks for calling. I appreciate it. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. And I hung up and I sat there by myself and something stirred within me. I believe the Holy Spirit was prompting me and I just knew that I needed to worship. I knew that I needed to be in the presence of God with his people. So I called Brad back and I said, hey man, um, is it okay if I play tomorrow? And he was like, uh, a little taken aback. He's like, well, I mean, I guess, or don't you want to be in the hospital with Jen? I said, bro, I do, um, but she's unconscious. And the rules in this, in this ICU, like I can only see her like once every six hours or something. And she's not even going to know I'm not there. And I need to be around the people of God. I need to be in the presence of God and worship. Is it, is it okay? He said, yeah, of course, man. I'll see you in the morning. So I, I went to, to church the next morning. I got ready and we worshiped. And, uh, I don't remember a lot about that service. Uh, I remember that even though it was sort of, it was a fairly large church, uh, that service kind of turned into, hey, here's what's going on with the Shoops. We had built really healthy and loving community and uh, loved the people there and were well-loved and they were concerned about how we were doing. I don't remember a single song that we played, but I remember being on my knees in worship 
playing and weeping, tears streaming down my face because I knew I needed God to show up in a powerful way for my family. And somehow that broken moment of worship, God used to stir worship in the hearts of everyone else in that place. I remember looking around and seeing every hand in the place raised. I remember tears streaming down people's faces, people crying out to God, not just for my family, but for themselves, crying out for his presence because we knew that we had a moment of desperation. We knew that we needed the living God to show up in our lives. And I remember something else. I remember being there, tears streaming down my face and the Lord speaking very, very specifically to me. He said, Brandon, I see you and I know that it's not okay right now, but I'm telling you, it will be. I can't adequately describe what that did for me in that moment. I can tell you that 15 years later, standing on this stage, those words still have emotional and spiritual power for me. When God speaks, there's power attached because his voice is an expression of his character and of himself. When he speaks, there's power. And I believe that that is what David is doing in this moment. He's in the wilderness. He's crying out. He's unsure about what's going to happen with the kingdom. He's unsure about what's going to happen with his family. But he's reminding himself of the goodness of God. He's reminding himself how great God has been in the past. And as we go on in verse 6, it says, On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. And when I first read that, I thought, well, that's weird. We're in this... This sort of this public profession of faith. We're in this corporate worship gathering and now we're in like David's bedroom at midnight. That's weird. Um, but as I, as I studied it more, as I prayed a little more, I realized it's not weird at all. It's not out of place. It's actually like the completion of a cycle or, or the culmination of the how-tos of worship because the, the public acts of worship are important. The way that we interact with the living God in spaces like this with our brothers and sisters, with the community of faith is important and it's prescriptive. We've seen the ways that God has asked us to worship in, the, in those spaces, but it's also important in the secret place. It's important in the watches of the night, in the middle of the night when I don't have anyone else around me, that's where my character is revealed. That's where my love of God is really revealed. It's not how well I can perform in a moment in front of people. It's that I'm really seeking him through the watches of the night, through every aspect and every area of my life. We talked about cross-references a little bit ago. I've got a couple of doozies here. Psalm 119 says, My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. I stay awake just to think about the things that you've told me, God. Psalm 16 says, I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me and I keep my eyes always on the Lord. I keep my focus on him. We're gonna talk about that a little bit more in a moment. And then there's another one. This is a really big idea that I wanna unpack a little bit. So we go to Deuteronomy chapter six. And Deuteronomy six is a really famous passage of scripture. It is known as the Shema. Shema Israel, Hashem, Elohenu Hashem Achad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts and impress them on your children. The word there, Shema, means to hear. In Hebrew, that same word is the word for obey. 
In Hebrew, there's no differentiation. In the Hebrew mindset, there's no differentiation between hearing something and obeying. As parents or as children, we know that when the parent says, did you hear me? We better pay attention to what's next, right? What's, what's about to happen is going to determine perhaps the well-being of my backside, right? That's what God is doing here. He says, hey, listen up. I've got something important to say. Love, love me with everything that you are. Talk about this with your children when you sit down at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. When the Lord God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land, large, flourishing cities that you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide. Wells you did not dig and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, when you are living in the land of the promise that I promised you in the midst of the wilderness, when you're living into the fullness of what I said, do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. We have to be mindful and remember. I told you worship is response, but worship is response and response is remembering. Response is remembering. Our right response is to remember. And I know that we're a forgetful people. We have lots of things vying for our attention all the time. And this idea of forgetfulness is, is ripe in the scriptures. This is the story of Israel. God does something great and they, they forget and they sin and they falter and God saves them and they rejoice and for a little while things are great and then they forget and they falter and on and on. We're a forgetful people, but if we're going to survive this world, we have to figure out how to remember God's faithfulness. In the middle of the difficulty, we have to remember that God has always been and always will be faithful. There's another reference I want to unpack here. And this one surprised me. I, I didn't expect this at all as I was studying it. But there's a reference to Matthew chapter 14. Through the watches of the night, I remember you. Matthew 14, the disciples and Jesus have just fed the 5,000. We know there are lots more people than 5,000 because it was, there were women and children there as well. But we fed over 5,000 people with a handful of items. This is a miraculous moment of provision that God provides over abundantly for his people in a way so that he can show them he loves them, show them that he wants to provide and care for them. So they feed the 5,000 and Jesus, as is his custom, doesn't go seeking another crowd, doesn't go to seek to capitalize on the event that just took place. He doesn't put on Twitter, hey folks, that was lit. Here's what's going on in my life, come check it out. No, Jesus puts the disciples in a boat and tells them to go across the lake and he goes to a wonderful, quiet place. He goes to seek the Father in a lonely place on the mountain. And it says through the, through the night, the, the disciples got a far way off and they were being buffeted by the wind and the waves. A storm had arisen on the lake. And it says here in verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And it says that when the disciples saw him, they were terrified because they thought it was a ghost. They'd never, 
Have, you in it, have any of you ever seen someone walking on water? I'm pretty sure there are no hands going up anywhere in our network because it's, it's miraculous. It doesn't happen without the power of God. So when they saw him, they were terrified. They thought it was a ghost. Let me think about this for a second. How did they see him in the middle of the night unless they were looking for him? In the middle of the storm, in the middle of the watches of the night, they were looking for Jesus. They were looking for hope to come and help them. And Jesus comes up and he says, it's okay, don't be afraid, it's just me. And then Peter, beautiful, bold, impetuous Peter, says, all right, Lord, if it's you, ask me to come out on the water with you. He says, come on, brother, it's me, come on out. And, we, and many of us have heard this story. We grew up seeing the flannel grams in, in Sunday school, perhaps. But for those of you who haven't heard this story, think about this for a moment. And for those of you that have, take off the, the past memory of this for a second and just think about how this happens. Peter gets to the edge of the boat. His eyes are firmly fixed on Jesus and he steps out and his foot finds firm ground on the water. And he keeps focused on Jesus and he takes another step and he finds firmness again. He's walking on water. And then it says that he took, when he saw the wind and the waves, he became fearful and began to sink. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think the wind and the waves had stopped? Do you think that the water had magically turned into ice while he was looking at Jesus and then when he looked away that it it stirred back up? No, no, no. His circumstances didn't change. When he was focused on Jesus, his circumstances were still the same. There's still wind and waves and storm, but his focus was on Jesus. When he took his focus off of Jesus is when he began to sink. Worship is about shifting our focus. It's about learning how to shift our focus from the things of our lives firmly and securely on the one who secures our lives. Through the watches of the night is the language. Through midnight, about midnight is what is, what is being referred to as by David here. It's the time of the Passover when the spirit of death passed over the land of Egypt to kill the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. And, and it passed over the Israelites' homes who had put the blood of the lamb on their doors as a sign of mercy and God's salvation. When it passed over, the scripture says it was about midnight. In Acts, where Paul and Silas were in jail, it says that about midnight, they were praising God and singing hymns to him. And miraculously, the, the gates opened. Here's what's amazing about that. The jailer was about to kill himself when the gates opened because he assumed that all the prisoners were gone. And, and custom in that time was that if, if you were the jailer and your prisoners were gone, you were gonna die, so you may as well just fall on your sword. And Paul and Silas cried out to them and said, don't harm yourself, we're all still here. And through that experience, not only did the jailer get saved, but his entire family got saved because Paul and Silas were faithful through the watches of the night to be focused on the living God. We've got to learn how to do that. The Levites, I think David is referring to them through the watches of the night. I'm faithful to you. The Levites were charged with the care of the tabernacle. 
And God, as we know, has a prescriptive order for what happens in the tabernacle. And he gave them specific instructions never to let the fire of the altar burn out. Pastor Sean referenced that just a few weeks back. They were, they were always to keep the fire burning because the fire of the altar was meant to consume the offerings and objects of worship. And if we are to keep the fires of the altar burning in our hearts, scripture says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if we're to keep those fires burning within us, then we have to learn to move away from consumerism and learn to move into being the consumed. We've gotta learn to move away from the things that define us by what we are against. Consumers look at the things that they desire and the things that they're against, and that's how they're defined. Those who are consumed are defined by what God wants. If you find yourself in a situation and you're more concerned about your preferences, how you think things should be, or how you're being perceived or your image than you are about the story that God is telling in that moment, then you might be in danger of having a consumer mentality. The kingdom of God is not about consumerism. The, cons the kingdom of God is about submitting our lives to the all-consuming fire of our God and letting our lives become the offerings of worship that are burnt up on the altar. Being consumed is mar being marked by God. And it means that we, we invite God into our circumstances. It means that we find freedom, not by putting a shine on things and making everybody think that we're okay, but by inviting God into the mess of our lives, inviting him into the fear, inviting him into the anxiety, inviting him into the hope and the dreams and the good things, inviting him into every aspect of our lives. Because when we fall on the altar and we make every component of our lives his, that's where we find true freedom. When we live into this truth, when we live into the watches of the night, we seek him through the wilderness and through midnight and darkness, always looking for him. We see him as our hope, as our refuge, as the water in a dry and parched land, as the one we long for, hope for, need, and it's there that we find him. The Lord says, when you seek me, you will find me. When you seek me with your whole heart, I'll be found by you. It's in our desperation that we find him showing up in miraculous ways. It's in our utter and abject need, in our poverty, in our sickness, in our weakness. It's in our weakness that his power is made perfect. There's something about our desperation that touches the heart of God and he shows up in power he shows up in providence, in provision, in protection, in plan, in peace, and in power. And it shifts here in Psalm 63, verse 7 and on, because, I, because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you, your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king, but I will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Here's where it shifts, folks. When we set our lives on that path, on that trajectory of worshiping him through every aspect of our lives, we recognize that that's where the battle is won. Worship is warfare. Worship is battle. Worship is how we fight 
our battles. Worship and remembering God's goodness and faithfulness of God. That's how we win because we are called to be carriers of God's presence. Look at the Old Testament. Those who carried God's presence, the Israelites, when they carried the Ark of the Covenant signifying God's presence, when they carried his presence in his timing and in his way, they won. And we win the spiritual battles against powers and principalities because lest we forget, the battle is not against flesh and blood. The battle is not against your neighbor who won't mow his lawn. The battle is not against your coworker who frustrates you or your boss that treats you poorly. Your battle is not against a, in, a, in a relationship that you just can't seem to make things right. Your battle is not against political personalities or groups of people. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities and spiritual darkness. It's not against people. In fact, as I was praying about this, I felt like the Lord spoke very clearly. and said, I, I want my, my people to stop being angry with other people. Stop being angry with the person that's frustrating you and start being angry for the person that's frustrating you. Start, stop being frustrated or disappointed in the people that have let you down and start being frustrated for on behalf of the people that have let you down because they have not received the fullness of God in their lives yet. That's why they act that way. We act improperly because we don't have the fullness of God in our lives. And God says that his desire is that not one would perish, but that all would come to saving knowledge through Jesus. He wants all of us in the fold. That's why it says that he goes after, he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And we are all that one at one point in our lives. When we stop fighting against people and we start fighting the spiritual battle in worship, in prayer, on behalf of the people that God loves, watch what happens. I dare you. Watch what happens when we start battling on people's behalf and carrying God's presence because carrying God's presence means carrying his heart. Watch what he does when we start to get that. We win reconciliation of relationships. We win marriages restored. We win healing of bodies and hearts and minds. We win the lost souls who are longing for that same water in a dry and parched land. We win the right to become carriers of his presence and we win the right to be the hope of the world because Jesus expressed through his local church is the hope of the world and we get to be carriers of that hope. And when we do that, we win against hopelessness and disillusionment. We win against racial disharmony and cultural upheaval. We win against all the nonsense that this world has to offer because we are meant to be carriers of his presence. And brothers and sisters, his presence changes everything. Do you believe that? His presence changes everything. So what? What does that all mean for me? Several years later, after my ICU moment, we had moved back to Colorado Springs and uh, life was pretty good. And I was uh, jumping back into ministry. Our family was healthy. And I was, I was playing on the worship team at our, at our church in Colorado Springs on a Sunday morning. And I was, <laughs> I was crying again. Kind of a crybaby when it comes to worship, I'll be honest. If the Holy Spirit is, is present and speaking to me, there's a high degree of likelihood that tears are flowing. 
So sorry, if I'm less of a man for that, then I don't know. You can have my man card, I don't care. Um, But here I am on my knees in worship, bawling my eyes out in front of several thousand people. That's great for your ego, right? (laughs) Um, And the Lord took me back to that moment years before. And he said, I told you, Brandon, that it wasn't okay. And I told you that it would be. And I'm telling you now that it is. When we remember him, when we're faithful through the watches of the night, when we seek him in the wilderness and on the mountaintop, he's faithful to provide. And here's the deal. We are called to be carriers of God's presence. We're called to be carriers of God's presence. You want to see things change in your marriage? Start being a carrier of God's presence. You want to see things improve in your workplace? Start being a carrier of God's presence. You want to see your kids grow up to be the healthy children of God that they are meant to be? Start carrying God's presence in your home. You want to be nicer, more compassionate, more loving? You especially. Start being a carrier of God's presence. You want to see addiction removed from your life and fear go? Start being a carrier of God's presence. And I'm telling you, it is that simple. It is. It is that simple. But do not confuse simple with easy. It's a simple plan. It's straightforward. David, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy outlines the way that we do this. All of these ideas of how we worship, it's simple. It's just being faithful, but it's not easy. It's going to cost you something. David said, I refuse to give God something that costs me nothing. It's going to cost you some time online or on Facebook chatting with friends. It's going to cost you some time with your favorite television show. It may cost you an unhealthy relationship. It may cost you the thing that God has asked you to give up that you haven't given up yet. It may cost you the thing that God is asking you to begin that you haven't started yet. It's going to cost you some time in the prayer closet, in worship and in the word. It may cost you some sleep because being a carrier of God's presence costs something because to be a carrier of his presence you first have to be in his presence you have to dwell and abide with him that's why Deuteronomy 6 is so important it's the road map it tells us what to do with my heart with my mind with my mouth with my hands with my feet where I go with whom I do the things that I do and how I interact it gives me the map for how to be faithful with his presence and if you will become that carrier, it'll change your life. It'll change your family. It'll change this church. It'll change these cities, the nation, and beyond. If we will just be carriers of God's presence, because here's the thing, carriers of God's presence are dangerous. Carriers of God's presence are not beholden to worldly ideals or material goods. Carriers of God's presence are hard to offend. Carriers of God's presence are full of love and compassion for everyone, everyone around them, not just the people we like, all the people. Carriers of God's presence are bringing hope and healing to the lost, the marginalized, the sick, the poor, and the broken. And carriers of God's presence are willing to give it all away and can't be controlled by anything or anyone except God. Because carriers of God's presence, we've, we've become attuned to his voice. We've learned to feel his nudges and see his winks and understand his leading in our lives. 
We're learning to become the presence of God for people and be conduits of grace and mercy that he's called us to be. Carriers of God's presence know that it has nothing to do with us to begin with. Except that we obey and we watch God show up and do what only he can do. Carriers of God's presence are always remembering that it was God who brought them here in the first first place. We are meant to be carriers of his presence. All of these actions just allow access so that we can carry him with us in everything we do and everywhere we go with everyone we're with. Because ultimately God's plan wasn't just for Israel to get to the promised land. That was part of it. That was great. But it wasn't to end there. That was the beginning of his plan of redemption. That's why he says, don't forget it was me who brought you here. Because when you remember it was me, you make it available for other people. God, God always has something in store for you and the next person and the next person and the next person. He's just that good. He's just that loving. He's just that faithful that he wants goodness for you, but he doesn't want it to end there. He wants to carry it forward. So here's how that happens. I told you that if we want to be carriers of God's presence, we first have to be in his presence. I'm going to pray in just a moment. The worship team is going to come and we're going to sing a song called Holy Ground. In that song, the chorus says, show us your glory. Help us have your presence. Show us your glory. In in wonder and surrender, we fall down. Let every burning heart become holy ground. So if you want to be more a carrier of God's presence than you are today. If you want this church to become more a carrier of God's presence than it has been in the past, then I want us to respond in this next song. I'm gonna pray and when we've, we get into the song, I want every heart, every hand and every voice lifted to God, crying out to become the carriers of God's presence that he's called us to be. And here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to get in a posture of worship that challenges you. Maybe for some of you, that's just singing. Maybe for some of you, that is lifting your hands or kneeling or making the the front here an altar. Whatever it is, do something that challenges your preference, challenges your pride, challenges the facade that we carry about how things are in our lives. I want all of us to participate in worship like it matters because our lives and the lives of those around us depend on our ability to become the carriers of God's presence that we're called to be. Amen? Would you pray with me? Living God, I thank you. I thank you that you are faithful and that when we remember you, We are remembering your goodness and your glory and your faithfulness. We get to remember the great things that you have done all the way through our lives and look forward to the good things that you're going to do. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We want to worship you in every aspect of our lives. We recognize that it's not just about the songs we sing. It is important that we sing songs and that we proclaim your majesty and your goodness and your power. But it's also important that we watch through the middle of the night and be faithful to you there. It's important that we live at peace with one another in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and our homes. It's important that we carry your presence everywhere we go and in everything we do. 
So living God, would you fall? We know that you are here, Holy Spirit. We sense your presence already. And I ask that you would fall on us. Would you fall on this place? Would you fall on these hearts and empower us to be the people of God that you've called us to be? We love you. We honor you and we worship you. And it's in the strong name of Jesus that we say, amen.